How does a gospel, say the Gospel of John, generate meaning? First, there's the stories, the scenes or episodes that come by, one at a time, like pearls on a string, the little picture. And then there's the big picture, the entire pearl necklace, the Gospel of John as a whole. And that's it, right? The necklace and then each individual pearl. But these two ways of engaging the Gospel can obscure a third way. A third strategy the author of John uses to get across ideas and sentiments. It's a tried and true technique used by artists for thousands of years, from poets to storytellers to painters to composers. What is it? Well, that's the topic we'll tackle in this episode. And it's one important key to understanding John and many of the books in the Bible's library. It's the power of a pattern. I'm Matthew Meyer Bolton, and this is Strange New World, a show about understanding the Bible for skeptics, believers, and everybody in between. Try this one. In the first creation story in the book of Genesis, what does God create on the first day? I mean, it's stars on the fourth day and fish and birds on the fifth, but what about the first? Any ideas? Many would say light, you know, let there be light, right? And it's true, God's first move in the story is to create light and separate the light from the darkness. But then God calls the light day and calls the darkness night. And it was evening and it was morning the first day. So what God creates on the first day is, well, the first day. Or rather, what God first creates is the rhythm, the choreography, the form of night and day, and night and day, and night and day, which, after all, has been the basic unit of timekeeping for the vast, vast majority of human history. Remember, the creation story begins with everything formless and void, as the storyteller puts it. And so God's first move is to bring some form to the chaos, essentially creating time, evening and morning, evening and morning, the possibility of sequence, a precondition for all the creativity to follow. You can't have creation without a timeline, days, and as it turns out, a seven-day week. Now, the idea of a seven-day week had already been developed by the ancient Hebrews' neighbors, the Babylonians and Sumerians, but the Hebrews added the idea that it was God who made and modeled the week, and crucially, modeled it such that the crown of the week is the seventh day, the Sabbath day, the day of rest and enjoyment. So God creates a timeline, yes, but not a flat, straight line but rather a circle or a spiral, a line always proceeding from and returning to 
the Sabbath. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And the claim is, really the astonishing claim, is that this spiraling line, this original sevenfold pattern, connects time and eternity, the creation and the creator, a rhythm in the image of God. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Six days of work and creativity, and one day of rest and enjoyment, a taste of the eternal, a pattern woven into time. In one of his Sabbath poems, Wendell Berry dramatizes this sevenfold idea by drawing another kind of line. Not a timeline, but a line in space, out at the edge of a farmer's field, separating that field from the woods beyond it, and the woods a kind of window into the eternal itself. The poem begins this way. How long does it take to make the woods? As long as it takes to make the world. The woods is present as the world is, the presence of all its past and of all its time to come. It is always finished. It is always being made, the act of its making forever greater than the act of its destruction. It is a part of eternity, for its end and beginning belong to the end and beginning of all things, The beginning lost in the end, the end in the beginning. What is the way to the woods? How do you go there? By climbing up through the six days field, kept in all the body's years, the body's sorrow, weariness, and joy. By passing through the narrow gate on the far side of that field, where the pasture grass of the body's life gives way to the high original standing of the trees. By coming into the shadow, the shadow of the grace of the straight ways ending, the shadow of the mercy of light. Why must the gate be narrow? Because you cannot pass beyond it burdened. To come in among these trees, you must leave behind the six days world, all of it, all of its plans and hopes. You must come without weapon or tool, alone, expecting nothing, remembering nothing, into the ease of sight, the brotherhood of eye and leaf. As Barry imagines it, the idea of the Sabbath is that there is a line between the six days field and the woods, where the eternal presence of mercy may be sensed on the seventh day. And by the way, for Barry, eternal doesn't mean a really, really, really long time, because even the longest time is still a time. 
The eternal isn't a whole lot of time. It's beyond time. Beyond, yes, but the thing is, we can sense it, touch it, taste it in certain patterns and experiences in time. What about you? Do you have a place or an experience or an activity that functions in this way as an entrance into the presence of mercy? Like berries walking in the woods, or maybe it's a swim or a porch or a park bench or a particular cup of tea in a particular mug in a particular spot. Indeed, for Barry, it could be any place and any moment. In another poem, he pictures the line not as a threshold with a narrow gate, but as an edge that's everywhere, thin as a blade. Here's Barry again. The difference is a polished blade, edgewise to the eye. On one side gleams the sun of time, and on the other, the never-fading light. And so the tree that stands full-leaved in broad day, and the darkness following, stands also in the eye of love, and is never darkened. The blade that divides these lights mirrors both, is one. Time and eternity stand in the same day, which is now in time and forever now. How do we know? We know. We know we know. They only truly live who are the comforted. Barry's idea here is that eternity is always close at hand, just on the other side of the blade, the other side of the line. From this point of view, the Sabbath day is a kind of rehearsal, a honing of a skill, one intentional day of basking in mercy's eternal presence, so we can better sense that presence all week long, tasting eternal life here and now. Eternal life isn't something later. It's always now, forever now, as Barry puts it. In John's story of Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well, Jesus offers her living water, which he says quenches a thirst deeper than physical thirst, and becomes like an internal spring of water, gushing up to eternal life. The ordinary water in the well is a kind of starting point in the conversation, a springboard for opening our minds to another kind of water, quenching another kind of thirst. And this brings us to that third way that John generates meaning. This story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well is in the fourth chapter of John. And just a couple pages later, in chapter 6, Jesus has another conversation, this one with a crowd, that unfolds according to the same pattern. In John 4, the woman asks Jesus for water. In John 6, the crowds ask for bread. 
Jesus tells the woman that there is another, more deeply nourishing, living water. And to the crowds, he says there is another, more deeply nourishing, true bread. Misunderstanding this special water as physical, the woman asks for it, saying, Sir, give me this water, so I don't have to keep coming to this well. Likewise misunderstanding, the crowds say, Sir, give us this bread. And then, in each story, with an I am statement, evoking God's name in the book of Exodus, Jesus declares who he is. By way of these parallels, John highlights the underlying pattern. Encounter, misunderstanding, invitation to deeper insight. And this is the pattern, John suggests, that we should expect as we learn from Jesus, to be prepared to continually move beyond narrow-minded ideas and adopt wider, more imaginative forms of trust in God. Again and again in John, people misunderstand Jesus by thinking too literally, prosaically, conventionally. Think of Nicodemus, who asks, after hearing Jesus mention being born from above, how can anyone be born after growing old? Or the crowds who ask for bread, who say, after Jesus says he's the bread of life, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Narrow, prosaic misunderstanding is a recurring motif in John, and the pattern functions as a helpful hint to us. Don't take Jesus' teachings too literally. Open your hearts and minds to higher or deeper or more poetic understanding, adventurous forms of thought and feeling, more fitting for what Jesus calls in his conversation with Nicodemus, heavenly things. By repeatedly spiraling back to this key motif, John drives the point home. And this use of motif is the third way that John generates meaning. As have all kinds of artists for thousands of years, think of how a composer might introduce a melody in the first movement of a symphony and then reprise it in the final movement. The power comes from the pattern. If we chop up the Gospel of John into individual scenes or episodes and then only consider them in isolation one at a time, it's like listening to Beethoven in 90-second sound bites, bouncing around from symphony to concerto to symphony. You do get a sense of Beethoven, but what you miss is how he generates power through patterns, motifs, themes, reprising key musical ideas. For John's part, parallel stories call our attention to the common pattern the boiled-down essence, the simple lines that the stories share. Encounter, misunderstanding, invitation to think and feel more imaginatively, more adventurously, to see heavenly things in and through earthly things, the eternal in time. In ordinary water and bread and everyday life, living water, true bread, eternal life, right here and now, forever now, just on the other side of the line.
Throughout his life as an artist, Henri Matisse would simplify the people and things in his paintings to their most basic shapes, using clear, strong lines. Along with his use of vivid colors, these simple lines helped him distill things down to their essence. It's like taking a long, complex story and summarizing it in brief, plain language. If done well, this can help the basic ideas and feelings in the story, or the painting, shine through, and so help us focus on what's most important, most essential, most beautiful. Matisse did self-portraits in this style, with just a few lines as well as drawings of his daughter reading, and toward the end of his life, large faces he called masks. He said, These drawings spring up in one piece. I am absolutely convinced that they represent the goal of my curiosity. Sometimes in the art world, this kind of simplification is called abstraction, but that's not really a great word for it. In these line drawings, Matisse wasn't moving away from his subjects. On the contrary, he's trying to move toward them. And as he does, and here's the key point, he lets certain details fall away, so that what remains is an essence, a signature pattern, a spirit of the subject evoked by a few simple lines. This isn't abstraction, but rather distillation. way, the author of the Gospel of John had a similar mindset, using simple, elegant language to draw out essentials, and using the power of patterns to structure parallel stories, calling our attention to the underlying contours, the basic lines they have in common. So, yes, reading John, look at the individual stories, the stitches in the cloth, one by one. And yes, look at the whole cloth, too, the overall effect of the tapestry. But also look in a third way. Stay alert to the patterns woven into the cloth, between and among the stories. Watch for motifs, for lines that run in parallel, signaling, for example, that we shouldn't take Jesus too literally, but rather take him imaginatively, adventurously. Watch, too, for lines that divide, lines that Jesus calls us to cross, the hierarchies and prejudices, for example, that kept Jews and Samaritans apart, or men and women apart, for that matter, Divisions bridged by Jesus' candid, and by the standards of the time, scandalous conversation with a Samaritan woman at a well. And finally, watch for that line on the far side of a field. Indeed, on the far side of every place and every moment, thin as a blade's edge. So that if we tilt the blade just a little this way and that, we can catch sight not only of the sun of time, of everyday life, evening and morning, but also the boundless presence of mercy, of eternal life, forever now. For if we have eyes to see and hearts and minds to imagine, that line is everywhere, in water 
in bread, even and especially in the most routine patterns of our days. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Jesus, Wendell, and Henri is a miniseries by Strange New World, a Salt Project production, written and produced by me, Matthew Meyer Bolton, with help from Elizabeth Meyer Bolton. Music is by Pablo J. Garman, Blue Dot Sessions, and Epidemic Sound. If you like what you hear, spread the word and give us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really does help people find us. And drop us a line at community at saltproject.org. And if you'd like to go deeper, SALT has devotionals for Lent based on the work of Wendell Berry and Henri Matisse, which include more details, activities, links to the paintings, and more. You can find them both in the store at saltproject.org. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.